0: Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my colleague Bruce Kelly. We uh, want to thank uh, Allworth Financial and the State of the Industry Podcast for sponsoring this episode. Uh, let me let me set the stage here for, for what we're going to talk about with our first guest. Uh, a few weeks ago, Peter Malouk, Chief Executive Officer of Creative of Creative Planning. Kicked up some dust on uh, Twitter by criticizing target date funds for a host of reasons, but mostly because they uh, they oversimplify retirement savings. I think, and in, in and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm paraphrasing because uh, Peter declined my invitation to join our podcast today. So. And
1: Creative Planning, Jeff, is is a big aggregator of RIAs. They've been making a lot of deals too, so he's a increasingly yeah. prominent guy. I think in the RIA. Business. Yeah, well. he
0: he uh, he cast a big shadow, so he got yeah. got some attention out there. Um, apparently, he had said everything he wanted to say on Twitter and, and didn't want to talk to us about this. He did say he. So he, he turned would, down
1: in an interview for, with us.
0: Right, but he did say he would come on and talk about other things. So maybe that's something for the future. Okay. But that brings us to our <laughs> our our actual guest, who, while technically was our second choice, is um is actually. <laughs> Probably offering a more objective perspective. Oh, he's the
1: first choice in my heart.
0: Yes. Um, Jason Kephart. Jason, a uh, former investment news colleague. So uh, Bruce and I have both had many beers with Jason. Well, anybody that knows Jason has had many beers with him. But um, he, uh, he, he now works as a strategist on the multi-asset manager research team at Morningstar. So he's uh, he's clearly overpaid but uh, we have him here to talk to us about target date funds Jason how you doing nice to nice to hear from you again everything okay there in Chicago for
2: you yeah everything's going great thanks for having me guys
0: all right well we're we're glad to have you and it's great to hear from you again um, so what did you happen to see uh, Peter's uh, comments on Twitter or any of that did you catch any of that
2: stuff and I haven't what is his Twitter thread could I look it up
0: all right. Well, Jason, just to—it's it, difficult to summarize and even paraphrase because it was a long uh, kind of thread that Peter Malouk and a lot of other people in financial services, who gave him a little bit of pushback on his criticism of, of target dates. He—he kind of, you know, he hit him hard for being oversimplified, the glide paths being wrong, and all that other stuff. And to me, that's was the whole idea of target date funds—to be oversimplified, but. But um, you know, Peter, look, Peter Maluk has you know he's he's got his own book to talk a little bit there. And um, what what's your perspective on this? I mean, how popular are these things, and, and and who are they
2: popular with? Target date funds. Yeah, so target date funds are probably the most popular way people in four hundred one k's save for retirements. Um, on defined contribution plans is where most people get access to for uh, target date uh, funds,
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: think the you know. Simplicity and low cost have proven to be very, very difficult to beat when it comes to investing. As you guys know, low costs have to be one of the best predictors of which funds are going to outperform. So I think over things, which usually leads to higher fees, usually leads to worse outcomes. So for the average person who doesn't really have a lot of finance background and is trying to save for retirement on their 401k plan, a target date fund is going to be probably their best option. Um, by far, I think. And so, at the end of 2020, um, tar- or end of 2021, target date fund assets stood at about 2.3 trillion. Um, so, you know, at this point, they're probably getting close to that 3 trillion mark. Vanguard became the first target date fund to hit 1 trillion by itself. So, it's, um, you know, these are very popular strategies. We're also seeing a lot more um, innovation happening. I think, you know, the this last week, the news broke that BlackRock launching is launching a target date fund with an annuity embedded in it in t- mid 2022. So I think they're, the you know, they are just really simple. Although that is, you know, a lot of them are and that also keeps costs really low, which I think is the best thing for investors over the long term.
0: Are they low cost though? I mean,
2: you can get Vanguard's target date fund for nine basis points. Okay. So $9 for every $10,000 you invest. That sounds cheap to me.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you can't be that bright. But some of the things that I, and and I'm not speaking on behalf of Peter, Malouk, or anyone, but I can see people saying right now that some of these these models and glide paths based on really nothing more than your age um, can be maybe a little bit oversimplified, especially at this point in the, with bond yields basically losing money for you. Are, you, are people using them the way they're supposed to be used? Are they saying, I'm going to get more aggressive and I'm going to get one that has me retiring in, you know, 2170 or something like that?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little hard to say for sure. You know, we don't get, um, we don't see the age of the people in the, in the funds from what we can see, but I think most people probably use it. They pick a date near where they want to retire and hopefully they're just kind of setting it and forgetting it, which is the best thing you could do mm-hmm. is just keep making your regular contributions through your paycheck. Don't overthink things. Because if you overthink things, you tend to really do it when things are at their worst, like March 2020, when we're getting that you know, very violent drawdown. And we did see a lot of target-day outflows in that period. And what happened was, when, they're, when you're pulling your money out at the bottom of a bear market, you're really setting yourself up to um, not catch as much of the rebound. So, I think that's a definitely a challenge, is when people pay too much attention. They tend to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I can see the criticism about, you know, being the age, being the only um, data point. I do think one evolution we're going to see, um, especially as big data becomes more of a thing, is um, 401k plan uh, plans asking for more information to better inform the glide path for each specific person based on things like their salary, their amount saved, their amount saved outside of the plan, um, you know, what any, any, any other um, kind of considerations than a normal financial advisor would ask.
0: I, I s- certainly see the criticism that they are oversimplified, but I also see the, you know, the pros of if this gets people into an investing mindset or an investing mode in some sense of diversification, it's hard to criticize it when you consider if the alternative is to not invest or just to let their money sit there in some index fund or or something like that. Yeah.
2: I think um, that diversification is a really big part of it. Um, you know all of these target date funds are pretty broadly diversified across global equities, global bonds, some have a little bit of commodities in them. But what's really great about them for like a hands-off investor is, you know that glide path. That all the rebalancing is taking place for you. All the diversifications is already being done for you. And then as you get closer to retirement they get more conservative, which it tends to be that's why the glide paths all glide you know, down as they get closer to retirement. But I would say most of them land between 50 and 40% equity at retirement, so they're not, they're not overly conservative, they're not going all into bonds, so they're not really locking in just this whole portfolio of really low yields. There is still a lot of juice left in a target date fund when it hits retirement, which might be even too much risk for some people to handle, which I do think we saw in March 2020, um, when 2020-2025 funds all had outflows. Um, which to me kind of signaled that maybe maybe they didn't realize how much risk they really had at that retirement point.
0: This is something that I've I've talked to uh, your colleague, Christine Benz, about, the, the idea of how target date funds are used. And I think her perspective was that if you're going to use a target date fund, that should be what you use. You shouldn't have a target date fund and then building a bunch of
2: other things around it. Is that kind of where you guys are? Yeah, I think so, because I think, you know, Most target date funds are going to have every major asset class in it. So if you're adding funds around it, you might be changing the risk profile without realizing it. Like if you add, uh, if you had 50% of target date fund and 50% like an SP 500 index, all of a sudden you've got uh, basically, you know, if it's a 2060 fund, now you've got like a 95% equity portfolio. And is that really what you realized you signed up for? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also had this question, and I i don't know if I've ever gotten the answer to it. Maybe you know it, Jason, because you, you seem to be a lot smarter than you were when you worked at Investment News. Um, the Is the retirement date, it, that's the date you're, you're, that's the, if you, if you have your, your uh, target date fund set for 2022 next year, that's the date you're retiring.
2: Um, so they're typically available in five-year increments. So 2020 and then 2025 will be the next one. Um, So some people are kind of caught in the middle.
0: All right, let's say 2025. I mean, that's you're ideally still going to live a while past that. So it makes sense that you might be 50-50 stocks and bonds. I mean, hopefully. No, definitely. I
2: think um, that longevity risk, the risk of outliving your savings is is a really real risk. Um, And that is why they do have that extra equity exposure. But I do think when you get like a really strong bear market, right when you're gonna retire and you see your nest egg drop by 30%, that's it's hard to think about the long term in those periods. And I think that's when people freak out and make make bad decisions. Yeah, well, and I can kind of see
0: why maybe some financial advisors might have a problem with target date funds because it, it looks to oversimplify one of their values.
2: Well, I think the value add of an advisor would be more in the um, in the retirement phase. Where you're trying to think about how to live off your assets, how to keep your assets, um, you know, working for you. I think target date funds, if there is a criticism, is that once you get to that, retire, once you're in retirement, they kind of, you know, they kind of just become like either a 40-60 fund or 30-70 fund and are kind of locked in. And there's no real financial planning around the how to use your target date fund assets at that point. So I think in retirement, that's where, you know, that's where I think people need the most help. And that's where things are probably the most complex when it comes to, you know, a 25 year old saving for retirement. I think a target date fund is a pretty a pretty solid way for the for accumulating your assets and, you know, not taking on too much risk over time.
0: Bruce, what are you thinking about target dates, my friend? Well, Mr. Kephars, we meet again. Yes. (laughs) That's funny,
1: Jeff. I always thought I always thought Jason was one of the smartest guys, young guys I'd ever worked with, you know. Uh, at Investment <laughs> News, and uh, we were we were uh, cellmates. We were. For, I don't know, a couple of years there, Jace, right? When did you leave Investment News, anyways? Um, January 2014. 2014. And you did your, I just want to give a little background, you did your, you went to Morningstar and then you did your CFA, right? Yep, yep. Which is a real bear of an exam, so you didn't have the CFA when Morningstar hired you, right? No. But you got it while you've been there. Yep. Yeah. So, and then you started out, you were an analyst on alternative investments, I think, at Morningstar first, right?
2: Yeah, started on liquid alternatives. And then after a year or two, that team got merged with the multi-asset team. And then I started moving from liquid alts into more um, kind of traditional multi-asset, like target date funds. Right. A lot of portfolios are kind of our big focus right now. And I think that is gaining a ton of traction with advisors. We're especially at the wirehouses. So that's kind of where our focus is now. But I mean, target dates are are a lot of fun, I think, to to dig into.
1: And so advisors are using your
2: research to what end? I believe um, mainly would be advisors who are working as 401k um, consultants or specialists, um, because obviously a target date fund is the most likely place you're going to find it is on a 401k plan. I don't think many probably many people don't use them off the shelf um, and advisors are probably going to, you know, for their own clients are going to build their own portfolios or use a model portfolio. So it's mainly on that 401k plan, which is where a lot of people are doing the majority of their saving for retirement just because they don't have the, the you know, the amount of income to max out their 401k plan and then have more money to invest.
1: I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, people, there were huge outflows. Um from target date funds during the March, February, March, 2020 downturn of what,
2: 30, 40%. Yeah. And I guess the interesting thing is the the younger people, people in the vintages farther out, the 2040s, 2045s, et cetera, right. they stayed. They they didn't react to the volatility. <laughs> they so don't they have as much to lose. Yeah. Right. And I get, well, cause I, the, the idea of, right, I think is that at that retirement date, that's probably the riskiest your portfolio, your the most risk you're going to ever have because you have no more contributions coming in and you've kind of run out of time. Like even to the 20, 25 people, if they had stayed put, um, you have five years to make up some of that and you're going to continue to make contributions. Right. So, you know, I think that the time is on your side and that's, that's a very valuable asset. When you hit that retirement date, then it's kind of like the clock's ticking the other way.
1: But I think many traditional financial advisors or wealth managers would argue, uh, that, this is where they do earn their fee. They get people to stay invested yep. uh, when they want to pull out of the market for any number of reasons, right? It could be the credit crisis of 2007, 8, and 9. It could be the COVID crisis. It could be any number of market disruptions,
2: you know, along the way. Yeah, I remember uh, we used to talk about financial advisors were kind of turning more into therapists <laughs> instead of <laughs> investment advisors.
1: Man, they certainly were. You know, two thousand eight, nine, and ten. You know. Yeah. Um, so I think
2: yeah, that is a very valuable, a very valuable ad. If you can get people to stick stick with their plan, that's the best thing they can do. And right, I think the the whether or not you're going to have success saving for retirement, the two most important things that you can really control are how much you save. And how early you start saving. So the more you people can encourage that, the better off I think everyone's gonna be. So what
1: else are you guys working
2: on at Morningstar right now that you could tell us about? Well, so collective investment trusts I think are kind of the big trend right now in target date funds. Um, what, what is invest- what is that? I have no idea what that is. So that is different than a mutual fund. A mutual fund's regulated by the nineteen forty act. Right. A collective investment trust is regulated by ERISA. It's only available on for, on DC plans. There is legislation right now to make it available on 403B plans, but we've seen a ton of money flowing into CIT funds or CIT uh, target date funds. Huh. And the biggest reason, and they're most popular among the biggest plans that have the most assets. And what makes CITs unique versus mutual funds is that in a mutual fund, if everyone in a share class has to pay the same fee, Bruce, if you and I have – if you have a million dollars and I have $50, but we're both in the A-share of you know, BlackRock Life Path Index, we both are going to pay the same fee no matter what. Right. But if you go to a CIT, um, the fees are negotiable. So uh, bigger plans get a lot better breakpoints. So the fees on CITs are even lower than they are in target date fund, mutual funds, like Vanguard's around eight or nine basis points um, after their merger. Their CITs are closer to three or four basis points uh, if the plan's big enough. Huh. So you're almost getting some of these target date funds like almost free. Hey, what about um, BlackRock? You, you mentioned that they're uh, folding an annuity in. That seems to be something that's got to add cost, right? So yeah, the BlackRock, um, the BlackRock Target Day Fund that does have annuities that start accumulating when you t- hit the age of fifty-five. That will have extra fees at once you are at that fifty, at that age fifty-five. Mm-hmm. So from you know twenty-five to fifty-five, it's going to be ten basis points ish. Um, and then the annuity will have a step up. We don't know exactly how much because um, it hasn't technically launched yet. But um, the Wall Street Journal reported they've already had like five clients sign up that they expect to move over with, I think, about $8 billion in, um, in the middle of next year. I think that's going to be an, an interesting one because there was new legislation passed in 2019 that allowed um, annuities into target date funds. So I think this is a trend we're going to see start to accelerate. BlackRock's the biggest first mover. I do think we'll see copycats if they are successful in getting plan sponsors to sign up for the kind of the added complexity that comes with annuities. So two
0: questions about adding annuities. One, it seems to be taking a really simple concept and making it more complex. And two, does the annuity require um, some kind of a, a commitment to stay in the target date fund in order to benefit from it.
2: You, the participants will have to opt in to convert the their annuity, their annuity credits into an annuity. So at 65, you'll have to make a decision on whether or not you want to opt in or take the value of the kind of annuity credits you've accumulated over the previous decade. Well, good stuff.
0: I got to imagine BlackRock starting it. A lot of people are going to follow it and... Um...
2: Every target date provider we talk to is at least looking at it. Really good stuff.
0: All right. uh, Anything else, Bruce, before we let uh, Jason get back to his, his hard work there at Morningstar?
1: No, just buena suerte, Mr. Kephart. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. For you listeners who are looking for news and information about practice management, mergers and acquisitions, or even what might be the impact of next year's capital gains tax increase on the advisory sector, have I got a show for you. It's Allworth Financial's State of the Industry Podcast. The State of the Industry Podcast is hosted by Allworth co-founder Scott Hansen, who earlier this year was named one of Investment News' icons and innovators for 2021. Hansen founded Allworth back in 1993, and the firm has won a slew of awards. He also writes a twice-monthly practice management column for Investment News. And just this year, Allworth was named one of the five fastest-growing RAs in America. Whether you're a financial sector news junkie or you run your own RA or independent broker dealer affiliated firm, search for Allworth Financial State of the Industry Podcast on Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, or at
0: allworthpartners.com.
1: Welcome back, everybody. This is the second half of the show. Uh, we got uh, uh, another great guest on here, Investment News' own Devin McGinley, a uh, Devin, I believe you are uh, head of research with us, right?
3: I'm the senior analyst.
1: Senior analyst, excuse me. Uh, senior analyst here at Investment News. What does that What does that mean, first of all, before we get into a recent report on on compensation and staffing that you were
2: doing?
3: Yeah, so um, I I head up uh, you know our research efforts here at Investment News. Uh, we do a lot of survey programs, uh, getting a you know a feel for uh, how advisors are thinking about the industry, about new developments in the industry, Uh, manage our databases, uh, and of course, uh, our benchmarking research every year, which is uh, why I'm here to talk to you guys. And uh, thanks for having me.
1: So you did, or we did our staffing and compensation uh, survey recently. I wrote a little story about it. It was, um, and there were some trends in there that uh, you had picked out um, uh, and and kind of put some attention on, and and people always like to, people in the industry always want to know what everybody else is making, right? Of course, And it seems like while advisor compensation, even though the the market did so well in over the past, you know, it has it this year, after having a dramatic downturn at the beginning of twenty twenty, it was really the. The front office types who saw the biggest uh, pay increases here, according to the survey, the CEOs and the COOs, if I'm remembering correctly.
3: Yeah, you got that. That you got that right, Bruce. Uh, advisor compensation, uh, you know, in our study this year was pretty much flat. Uh, you know, lead advisors on median uh, were making 160,000 uh, in total compensation. That's up, you know, a little bit uh, from 159 last year. Uh, and but we're seeing a lot of growth um in executive compensation uh, but I think it what what's important to remember there uh, is that you know this is geared toward you know a lot there's a lot of small independent firms uh, in this in this survey in this study so you know in a lot of cases there's a uh, you know there's kind of blurred lines between advisors and and the ceo
1: yeah why why is it that the CEOs and the CEOs are are C- these these pay what were the pay what were the compensation increases, and why did that happen? Is the, are they more in demand for as a job or, or what?
3: Uh, on median, we're talking medians here, uh, right? CEO salary uh, shot up. You know, total compensation, including incentives, base everything, uh, shot up from two eighty eight thousand uh, to three sixteen. Uh, for chief operating chief operations officers, uh, it went from one seventy five to two hundred ten. Um, and you know, there's a couple things going on. I'll, you know, I'll start with the managing partners and the CEOs. Uh, they, on average, own about half the firm. So, when it comes to CEO compensation, you know, a lot, a lot of it is, you know, a difference. It's a decision uh, for them about whether they want to take profit distributions, pay themselves a, a salary. In large part, you know, CEO salaries went up uh, over the past year because advisory firms did really, really well, uh, right. you know, uh, revenue growth, uh, was, was pretty strong. It was in line with, you know, what we've seen, you know, on average over the past five years. And that's, you know, even accounting for, you know, some really, a really terrible billing cycle, uh, in quarter one of 2020, Um uh, right. with, you know, the market down. So, you know, financial performance was pretty good. You know, we saw a lot of new assets from existing clients, from new clients, um, and at the same time, you know, on the other side of the ledger costs were, were down, you know, overhead costs went, uh, down from 43% of firm revenue, uh, to 38%, uh, which is a pretty huge jump, uh, you know, cause advisors were doing more with less, you know, they were taking a look at, um, you know, their, their, uh, office costs, um, their, their, you know, overhead, uh, over other overhead costs. Um, uh, so profit was really, was, was way up, you know, um, you know, compared to last, uh, compared to 2019. So that's going to be reflected, you know, in the incentive pay given to CEOs uh, and the profit profit distributions that they take. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, firm performance really does explain the, you know, the CEO pay increase there. Right. When you get to the, the chief operating officers, you know, they're not typically, you know, advisor owners, um, but they are, they're executives that are often hired externally. You know, when a firm gets to a certain size, uh, certain client base, they need to bring in an operations specialist. Right. Uh, so th- so those in that case, you know, I, th- I think the increase is, you know, it's, it's being priced to market a lot more than other roles within the advisory firm.
1: Yeah. The, the, the RAs will bring in a COO. I don't know when they get to have, I don't know, six employees, eight employees, 10 employees, you know, has been my perception. It just gets too big for the owner slash CEO to handle on his or her own. Yeah. yeah, And how how many um, firms did you uh, have in the the survey?
3: About 200 200 firms that that participated this year.
1: Okay. Jeff, do you got anything for Devin?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious, Devin, because we always hear about the the way that these firms are asset based, they're, they're charged fees based on assets under management. Um, and when, when the market's up, like it has been for a while, um, how can you get, I think you said the compensation was flat, wouldn't compensation kind of move with markets or does that money just go into business development and stuff like that? As I know we're talking about kind of separate things here, but I, I, I'm still wondering if there's a connection.
3: Well, you know, I think, you know, going back to the, the executive pay, you know, where if you're an owner of the firm, you're going to see um, you're going to see that that income, you know, from mm-hmm. from from uh, good markets. Right. Uh, and from growth and revenue. But, you know, at the advisor level, you know, firms, you know, at least, you know, independent, you know, the smaller firms, they don't really uh, recruit a lot of advisors kind of at the lead advisor level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one in, I think about one in eight firms in our study actually hired somebody, you know, at that, at that level. Most of the hiring is done at, you know, the support advisor level and firms tend to, you know, bring these folks into, uh, you know, an entry level role, let them rise up through the organization and uh, the culture of the organization. And those, you know, positions don't have a whole lot of negotiating leverage, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of it is that, you know, the part of the, uh, you know, flat compensation for advisors, uh, you know, who aren't necessarily owners is that, you know, they're staying at their firms a long time. There's not a ton of turnover. The Their jobs aren't being, their roles aren't being priced to to market, um, you know, as frequently as you may see in other professions. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just an economic fact that, uh, you know, you... You see more increase in compensation, uh, you know, when you uh, when you move between companies, when you move between jobs.
0: What What are some of the uh, starting salaries that advisors are are paying or receiving out there right now?
3: It It really depends on you know where they are in their career track. So we're mm-hmm. seeing you know to uh, at the lower level, the entry level, a support advisor on median is earning 69,000, uh, in total compensation. But when you move up, uh, you know, to the, you know, practicing partner, you know, when you have an ownership stake, um, more business development responsibilities, the median total compensation, you know, balloons to 250,000.
0: Anything. uh, and, And you have a trend line for that too. Something to compare that to.
3: Yeah. So, you know, practicing partners, uh, We've seen compensation, you know, total compensation on medium decline from you know two hundred fifty eight thousand when we took did the study in twenty nineteen to two hundred fifty thousand this year. Uh, so it's been you know a, a, a pretty prolonged trend of, of flat mm-hmm. comp, even at the highest level. Two
0: hundred fifty thousand is still a pretty good uh, compensation package, I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too worried. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what's your next? Uh, what's your next project, Devin?
3: We have our technology study uh, in the field right now, uh, and you know we'd love for uh, you know firms listening uh, here to take it. Um, that's going to be taking a look at at what uh, technology applications uh, decision makers are going to be looking at for the next year. Uh, what they're planning for twenty twenty two. Kind of an outlook study on on where. Uh, industry technology is going
0: is that emailed out to people or how can people participate if they want to
3: so yeah you can uh you can go to investmentnews.com backslash tech study to participate or we'll have the link in the show notes
0: excellent all right well thanks a lot Devin. um bruce anything else or are we wrapping it up yeah just one
1: uh point to Devin. the um the tech studies is like one of the biggest studies of the year right Dev?
3: yeah Yeah. that's that's our other main benchmarking study uh, right. that we come out with each year
1: yeah I've used that a couple of times it has I mean it has such minutiae about the about the industry you know it's a, it's a it's a great study and the guys do a, t- a
3: terrific job on it thanks Chris
1: but thank you Devin for dropping by the podcast talking about how much people are getting paid
3: all right thanks guys
1: that was another great episode of the investment news podcast if it's Monday it's time for another podcast. And we, we want to thank a few people. First of all, our sponsor, Allworth Financial, and its State of the Industry podcast. We want to thank our guests, Jason Kephart from Morningstar, Star, and our very own Devin McKinley. We also want to thank Steve Lamb, our producer. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com. Also, listen to it on Apple or Spotify, Google Play, us leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to... Jeff Benjamin uh, on Twitter via at Benji Ryder be on at BD News Guy please stay tuned because we will talk to you next week